On this episode of Year One, we speak to Tom Ward, CEO and founder of Epoch, a startup that designs and manufactures high-performance electric boats. Tom grew up on and in the water and is passionate about reducing the environmental impact of boating with products that are better than fossil fuel-powered incumbents. We speak about the journey from full-time employment to founders, from about co-founders, MVPs. There's so much in this conversation that's worth a listen. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Tom, welcome to Year One. Satish and I are thrilled to have you on our podcast. We're going to get into your business, right? But before we dive into your business, we want to learn a little bit more about the person behind the business. We want to understand, we'll get some insight into your life and the things that have happened that has actually shaped and molded you and turned you into this person that you are today. Absolutely. Well, Dan, it's Tish. Thanks for, thanks for having me on year one. Super excited to dive in. I guess we'll start at the beginning. I was a, I was a young lad many, many years ago, or maybe not that many, depending on your outlook. My grandmother actually started a small business way back in the seventies when it wasn't really something women would do. And she was a pretty impressive lady. You know, she could sell like ice to someone in the Arctic and Grew this small business, it was a travel agency, and ultimately passed it down to my father and he took over. And so that was kind of my childhood was I saw my dad running this business, lifestyle business, not a startup. So it was good. It paid the bills. He worked like 80 hour weeks and I kind of lived through that and saw what he was doing. And it taught me a couple things. You know, one is that you can work really hard and working really hard is a good thing. But then I also looked at there's some things you don't want to do and you probably don't want to work 80 hour weeks just for a lifestyle business. If you want to you know, value your time and go for, go for the gold, so to speak. That's what you should do. And I think in a lot of ways that really kind of molded my outlook on what I wanted to do in my career and in my life, you know, ultimately led me to where I am today, you know, having gone through a corporate career and then founding Epoch. Talk to us a little bit about your education. What did you study and what you're doing now? The school prepped you for it. Yeah. So my education, my background is actually in biomedical engineering. I have a degree in bioengineering and my focus was in proteomics and genomics. It was all on the computer, all software programming, you know, give me a, a drop of your blood and I'll tell you what your, what your genome looks like. Um, Jeez. Yeah. Really neat stuff. When I got to the end of that course of action, I was talking to my advisor and he was like, well, if you want to have a career in this, you, you need to go get your PhD. You can't just have a bachelor's degree and, and go do human genome engineering. And I said, well, like, I don't want to be in academia for another six years. I want to just go do stuff. I started putting out some job applications and, you know, my degrees in biomedical engineering. There's a bunch of medical device companies around me and they, they saw biomedical engineering. I saw medical device. We thought it was great. I got this job, small company doing about 30 million a year in sales. And my first day, they sit me down and say, okay, fire up the CAD program. You're going to be designing mechanical parts. And I'm like, oh my God, I, okay. Like, I love that. You know, I always took stuff apart as a kid. I like was building things in the garage. It sounds great, but I don't know what an extrude is. I don't know how to do tolerance stacks. So pretty much learned all that on the job. And then that kind of took me through into 
this whole career as an electromechanical product development and R&D engineer. So started in medical device, going through the whole FDA process and everything was great. It was a great learning experience, setting up me for designing quality products, but it was brutal. Oh, the FDA is horrible. Like working with them is so bad. If you're entrepreneurial, it's one of the worst things because you do all this great work and then you sit and wait and wait and wait and the FDA takes their time because they have a mandate that's important, but it, it doesn't jive with going fast. Tom, as you're talking, as Tom is talking, I'm thinking Theranos, the movie, and I'm thinking, did Tom get a job offer from those guys? And if you watched it, how much of that was like sort of in the world you lived in, man? Oh, I can't. You're like, I can't even talk about Theranos. No, I didn't have a job offer from them, but... <laughs> As a, as an early stage entrepreneur, seeing, seeing what they did or, or reading about it is, is it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch. Fortunately, the company I worked for, we were, we were by the book. We were straight. Everything we did had the clinical capability and actually, you know, in terms of physics worked. We had nice products that the company was interesting. It was, it was very old school though. And, you know, one day I was talking to the CEO and he was, he said the words like, oh, all these plastic, fantastic parts that people make are terrible. He wanted everything to be like quarter inch thick aluminum and you could hammer in a nail with the products. And that was cool, except, you know, you have to look at the customer and look at the business case. And if you're not serving the customer, then you're not going to have explosive growth. And that was one of my big takeaways from that company. Um, so after going through that experience for a little while, I started putting out some job, some resumes for new jobs. And I actually got hooked up with a, a subsidiary of Mars, Mars, the candy company, you know, M&Ms. And it turns out in the 1960s, Mars realized that they were losing a ton of candy bar sales at vending machines. People would put their quarters in and the vending machine couldn't read it. And they'd get their quarter back and they'd say, well, forget it. I'm not going to buy a Snickers bar today. So Mars built this small engineering division, you know, multi-billion dollar company. They do food products, pedigree food, all these candies. And they said, we need to build a engineering division that validates currency and says, if somebody puts a dollar bill in here, we're going to say, oh yeah, this is legit. This isn't something somebody made on their home printer. And we're going to deck, we're going to add that money into the vending machine and let the vending machine put it out. So that job was really cool. When I started it, we get in there highly electromechanical. We got circuit boards everywhere. We got motors, we got magnetic sensors, optical sensors. We were working with the treasury department and the secret service because there's like, there's like 12 security features on, on banknotes that they tell you about, but there's another dozen that are secret, like top secret classified. And so we had to know what those top secret ones were so that we could actually sense the product. So there were, there were all these like cool NDAs behind the scenes. And my first week there, I was, I was still very early in my career and they sat me down and they handed me $10,000 in bills. And they were like, well, you need to go test the products in the lab. So these are your $10,000 in bills. And I'm like, oh, this is great. It's like a rap video. You know, we're going to make it rain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and about two weeks later, I'm sitting there with this stack of banknotes and I'm thinking to myself, man, I really hate paper money now. Like it's because we're doing humidity testing and everything and it's so dirty. And I'm like, I'm just going to be a credit card guy, even though this is now my career. <laughs> It was a great place to work. Super awesome engineering. We had 90% of all Coke vending machines and like, wow. yeah. So we're, if you've ever bought a bottle of soda from a vending machine, you've touched one of my products as a customer in the vending space, like everything is about cost. You know, the quality has to be there. That's super important. Coke doesn't want to lose sales, but you need to have a really low cost unit. 
But then we also had a bunch of customers in the casino space where cost is way less of a factor. And they're like, listen, I don't want somebody to put their note in five times like they do at a Coke machine. It needs to be one and done. And your product can be two or three times as expensive. So it was a really cool situation to work with a lot of very different customers, but to move fast and be really entrepreneurial. And I love that company. We were under private equity and then we got sold. And, and when we got purchased, the new company wasn't so great. They kind of flipped the flipped the culture overnight and, and I had to move on. So I moved into the marine industry. I got really lucky with another, another entrepreneurial type company, rose to director of engineering, was building stuff for boats. I mentioned before, like I kind of learned about or got this idea of being an entrepreneur for my dad. He also had me on his sailboat before I could even walk. So he kind of started this lifelong love of boating and graphically one of the largest manufacturers in the country was right near my house. I hadn't known my whole life. And we came across each other through a recruiter. I, I got the position there and had a really nice career that ultimately led to what I'm doing today, designing boats at Epoch and you know, making electric boats. So first of all, I want to start off by actually saying our previous guest was a nuclear submarine engineer. Listening to your background, I feel that my career path is so fucking boring compared to the guests that we've just spoken to. I feel I can't <laughs> add anything to these conversations. Two for two, man. Two for two. You know, well, I, it's, it's, it's amazing. In fairness, I don't think anybody can hold a stick to a, an engineer on a nuclear submarine, right? That's <laughs> that's like it's either that or you're you're in NASA or SpaceX or something. So, and wasn't that his first job? I think that was his first job too. It wasn't like yeah, thirty I, years deep. You know, you don't find a job like that on Indeed. So it's fantastic, <laughs> man. So, so Tom, I've got a few questions for you actually, just off the back of that little introduction that you've given us, which I appreciate. So, your grandmother was an entrepreneur your father was an entrepreneur you then went down the traditional route of getting a job and then you became an entrepreneur was that by design or is that by accident that was by design so i actually i had a couple of attempts at building companies before where i am today the first one was in college um and me and my roommates decided that we were going to build basically what was like doordash except only for kegs which makes sense for if you're in, in college in the United States. Um, so, so we tried to build that. It was, it was absolutely a disaster. I mean, we had no business knowledge. This was before smartphones were a thing. Like we just thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just email someone and a keg would show up at my door and I'd pay for it. And yeah, it failed horribly, you know, never, never do go into business with your friends and your roommates and all that. So, you know, coming out of that, I always kind of had the mindset of like, I really want to, I like to take risks, but I like to take measured risks and making sure that I had some kind of relief valve of, okay, I can go be an engineer. I can have a good salary. I'll, I'll work for somebody else and, you know, deal with all the negatives of that, but there's a lot of positives that go with it. And so coming off of that, I just continued focusing on my studies. I, I got into these companies that were pretty entrepreneurial. So even though I was an, you know, individual contributor, even though I was an employee, it scratched some of the entrepreneurial itch. I got to design new products. I got to build project plans and strategic portfolios and do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, when I was working at the Mars subsidiary, this was when 3D printers were just kind of, not really a consumer product yet, but something that if you were really deep into the space, you could build at your home and you could do cool things with it. And so I started building them at home and playing around with them. and 
me and a couple of coworkers tried to start a 3D printer company. High tech, laser, SLS stuff. It was, it was really neat. We had a, we had a super awesome team. We were work colleagues and not friends. So we kind of fixed some of the structural problems I had in my first run, but we still had no idea about sales. Like we were a bunch of super nerdy engineers and we built some awesome technology in our basements. And then we had no idea what to do with it. Like, how do you even call a customer? How do you even find a customer to call? And do any of us have enough bravery to actually talk to that customer? And the answer to those were, I don't know, I don't know, and no, we don't. And so that ultimately folded and I continued on in my career. And as I was going through my career, you know, I was, I started as an engineering intern and I progressed to, you know, project engineer and then an engineering manager and then a director of engineering and ultimately a general manager for an R&D site. And as I went through all these, I was getting more and more broad responsibilities of now I was interfacing with the quality department. I was interfacing with the purchasing department. I was going out with project managers to customer sites to learn about their needs. I was going on sales calls. And over time, it really gave me this well-rounded kind of experience in the professional world so that eventually I got to the point where I said, okay, when I look back at the two previous attempts that didn't pan out, I've now filled in a lot of those gaps and anywhere where I think I still have gaps, I'm going to go find co-founders that I'm going to fill those in. And, and that was ultimately how Epoch came around. And one other thing I'll add to that too, the, the kind of thing that kicked me over the edge to start Epoch is in my last position, I was working for a company based out of Indiana. I live in Pennsylvania. And when they approached me to hire me, they said, listen, we've seen what you've done in the marine industry. We've got a couple million dollars of annual revenue in our marine division. We want to double it or triple it. And we need people that are going to come in and drive that. And that's why they hired me. And I said, that's great. I'm totally on board with that. Like R&D, new product development. I know it. We can do this. But I'm not moving to Indiana. I got to be here in Pennsylvania. You know, my wife has a career. My kids are in school. And they thought about it for about like 30 seconds and said, that's fine. You stay in Pennsylvania and just make it happen. So I started this process of finding a R&D site and we ultimately turned it into a pilot plant. Like day one, I got the keys from the real estate agent and I pulled in a table out of my garage and was sitting on my work laptop in the dark in this big empty building. And then I went out and hired a team and, you know, early days we didn't have like a custodial staff. So I was like cleaning toilets, <laughs> cleaning toilets at night, developing products during the day. We built out the team, we brought in all this equipment, we shipped tens of millions of dollars worth of product in a couple of years. And then at the end of it, I sat there and said, I basically just did the whole startup thing with the only caveat that I knew that my paycheck was gonna clear at the end of the week. I might as well just go do it and get the full benefit and you know, be in control and not, not be an employee anymore. It was what really pushed me over the edge to say, okay, this is, this is where Epoch's gonna come out of and this is why I'm gonna go on this journey now. Fascinated, Tom. You know, I've got a background in computer science or computer engineering now, as, as the new generation calls it. And, and when I talk to founders and we talk to founders, this is, you know, episode 25 or something, um, the few characteristics of founders that even as a childhood, you could see, right? So if I step into my mini version at 10, 8, 12, words like delusional, words like, like obsessed, words like chaos was sort of who I've always been. Then I went to computer science to sort of tamper that and build some structure, build some stability. And then when I got into the world of entrepreneurship, I kind of had both. I had the natural me 
the optimistic, change the world, delusional, obsessed person with a bitter structure on how to do just enough to be a good CEO. Tell me about you. What's the eight-year-old version of you like? And is the engineering a reaction to an entrepreneur in the making? Or is the is the entrepreneur the, the reaction to a structured engineer? So I think I think naturally I am I'm pretty I'm a pretty structured person and and definitely a little bit introverted. And that's something that over the years in my professional career and now especially as an entrepreneur, I've had to just like quash that completely. I think I think there's always been this kind of subtext of like, I would just want to go big. I don't care what it is. If I'm in a car, I want to go fast. If I'm selling something, I want to sell all of it and more. And yeah, I don't I don't know. I just I look at things and say, why why didn't we do it better? Why didn't we do it bigger? And you know, whatever it is, it's like if I go buy something, a consumer product, the first thing I'm looking at is how can I change this and make it better? Right. There's and and I know why products have issues, right? Because I've lived that and I've had to deal with you know, we've got to make compromises. We've got cost targets. We've got whatever reasons marketing ma makes us do this and it gets to the customer. There's something wrong. So I think, I think that's probably been a big drive is like, can we do it bigger? Can we do it better? Can we do it faster? And you can't do that in a big corporation or, or in an old school corporation, right? You can only do that as, as a startup basically. And, and I think we see that, right? Like Google. 10 years ago, Google still had Fridays, you work on whatever you want. You do really cool stuff if you're an employee and they, they were still in that startup mode and now that's all gone, right? They're, they've fully gone into that big corporation mode and they've got to look after the quarterly profits and not think about the long-term, not think about the, the gigantic opportunities. So not to, not to single out Google, they'll probably like shut down my Gmail account now or something, but <laughs> <laughs> we won't, we won't tag them on this podcast. <laughs> So Tom, tell us a little bit about Epoch. What is Epoch and why are you doing what you're doing? So Epoch is a climate tech company that builds really cool boats. We build and design battery electric boats and they're designed specifically for batteries, um, which sounds a little weird, but if you look at the boating industry for the last hundred years, all boats have been designed around having this big, heavy internal combustion engine on the back. And if you go in and just swap that for an electric engine, there's a lot of inefficiencies that go with doing that and you don't get all the benefits of going electric. So our boats with our hydrodynamic hull design and our automated hydrofoil system go about 1.5 times faster than boats that don't have it and three times further in terms of range. So really the, the use case is we're going to replace gas powered boats with easy to use electric options that are similarly priced and affordable. It's going to make a better experience for the boater and make a better product for the environment. It turns out boating is actually a huge emitter of pollution. There's about 13 million boats in the U.S. There's about 300 million cars. So when the EPA takes action, they're looking at those 300 million cars and they just kind of forget about boating. The end result is that those 13 million boats emit as much pollution as 600 million cars every year. And by going electric, we can take that down to almost zero. Every boat we electrify takes away all those pollutants. So that that is really our, our main case is making a product that customers love, that makes boating really easy for them, but then also has this side benefit of being great for the environment compared to what's on the market today. Which one's the leader in your mind, in your heart? Is it the climate tech or disrupting the boating industry? I, I think it's, I think it's, 
I don't know how to say which one's the leader. It goes back to that kind of duality of man that we were talking about a minute ago, right? Um, one piece of me looks at it and says, I really care about the environment and this is what I want to do. And then probably that like introverted, really structured piece of me is like, yeah, let's make money. This is great. And let's make a better product. And that's how we're going to make money. But uh, probably the environment wins out, wins out slightly. I think that piece of me is a little bit bigger than the other piece. You know, I mentioned that I, I was on boats before I could walk, right? And I've been on the water my whole life. I started sailing. I rode. I was on the crew team in high school. I got into power boating after I got out of college. And, you know, I surf. I've surfed my whole life. So I've always been on the water, but also in the water. And I've distinctly seen over over my lifetime that, you know, and maybe there's some foggy memory going on, but I remember the water being more clean when I was a child and now it's more polluted. And there's times where I look at it and say, I don't even want to jump in that water. I don't want to go water skiing. I don't want to, I don't want my kids to go tubing. It just looks bad. And the environmental solutions that we have would solve that at scale and, and make for better, better water for people to be in. So it is really near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to the team's heart. We're mission oriented around that. And that's a big part of our business model too. Like there are boats that are so expensive that, you know, millions of dollars per boat, but you're only going to sell five or 10 a year. And it's a great high margin piece of the business. But when we looked at that option, we said, that's not going to have environmental impact to sell 10 really expensive mm -hmm. boats a year. We want to sell a lot of boats that the average person buys. And that's why we're really focused on small boats that, you know, anybody in, in middle America would go buy and use on a regular basis. So I, I've got... Three questions or one comment, two questions string together. It'll make sense at the end. Okay. But my first comment is during COVID, we moved closer to the lake. I'm not a water guy. I can't swim. By the time my parents put me into swimming, I was already a teenager and I was shy. And I'm like getting into the water with a bunch of kids to learn. So I can get to the mini bar and come back, but I can't swim if you throw me into the water. When we moved to the lake, my son ate at that point and said, Daddy, it'd be great if we had a yacht. Cause there's a lake right there. And I said, man, I, you know, I can't confess to you that I'm scared of water, but I was like, maybe a yacht. So that was the comment. My first question, the dumb question is at what point does a boat become a yacht? Like, is there a size thing where you go, this is a yacht, this is a boat, this is a big boat, not a yacht. Just would love some education around it. But I'm more fascinated with my last question, which is the markets. A lot of the folks I see in this category are a little bit older maybe retired a little bit. Do they give a shit about the climate the way you do? Or it is a, hey, I want a boat, I want a yacht, I want to fill it up with the gas, take it out into... What's the market like for you? All right, so first question should be the easier one, but it's not. There, There is no hard definition around a boat versus a yacht. Technically, all yachts are boats, but not all boats <laughs> are yachts. We focus on sub 24 foot long boats. And the reason for that is because those boats can go on a trailer and you can pull them anywhere behind your car, behind your truck without special permitting. Once you get above 24 feet, if you wanted to move that boat over land, you need special permits. You can only go on special highways. You need an oversized load. And so those boats tend to live in the water. And generally, I would say 30 feet is a is a kind of a very fuzzy dividing line between where you would start to call them yachts. But there definitely are larger 40-foot boats that people would still just say, no, that's just a big boat. Hard, hard to hard to nail that one down. In terms of customer base, customers actually, actually surprisingly, I think in some ways do care. 
there's a segment of that customer base that, you know, they've got pickup trucks that are rolling coal and they're like, I just want my V8. I want, I want my engine to put out smoke, you know, the Tim, the tool man thing or whatever. But a lot of our customers look at it and they actually do want the more environmentally friendly option for a number of reasons. Um, one of the customers, when we, when we opened our customer wait list about a year ago, one of the first customers that came on the wait list was a, a retired gentleman in New Jersey. And I started talking to him as part of customer interview process. And he said, listen, I've been on boats since I was 13 years old. I had a Boston whaler a little, and all these little tiny boats. I live on the lake. Now I have a dock and all I want to do is take my grandkids out. When I get out there, I want to push a button and I want it to turn on. That's actually a big thing because gas powered boats don't like to do that. They're in the shop all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I said, well, that's great. Electric will pretty much do that every single time where, you know, we start every time. He said, I want it to be quiet. I want to go out there. If there's, you know, blue herons in the marshes, I don't want to scare them away with this big motor. And I don't want to deal with smoke and smells and all the issues that come along with that. So there may not be a direct of like a direct focus of, I want to be green, but there is this alignment of all the benefits that are associated with being green are actually huge benefits to being on the water. The sound is one that gets overlooked quite a lot. I've got, I have two children, a nine-year-old and 11-year-old, and, you know, we have gas-powered boats as well. We have some for testing, some for personal use, because we haven't filled out every use case yet. Um, and whenever I have them out in the gas-powered boat, like, invariably, I'll throttle up, the engine gets real loud, and I'll hear my kid, like, asking me some question. But I can't really hear it, right? I just... So then I got to throttle down, and he asks me his question. Okay, we answer it. Throttle back up. Oh, here's another question. And when we go out on, on our, we have, we have personal electric boats and then we also have epoch test boats. Whenever we're on those, it's like, we can have a conversation just like the three of us are having right now, no matter what speed we're at. Wow. And it's, it's a huge customer benefit, but it's also an environmental benefit. Like sound pollution is a thing. It affects marine life. It affects, it affects all life. So that's a really cool aspect of it that doesn't get a lot of, you know, sunlight shown on it, but. Once people experience it, they're like, wow, this is great. Yeah, this makes sense. I want to go back to your permanent employment. So you're sitting there and you go, I've actually just set up a whole facility for my company. I can do this. Yeah. So how did you go from I can do this to doing it? Where did you come up? What, did you always have the idea? Was this something you always wanted to do? Is it a accidental market opportunity? How, how did that all happen? So, so a couple of things came together. I pretty much always knew I was going to start a boat company one day. And historically, boat companies are lifestyle businesses. Somebody's there's, there's like 3,000 boat companies in the U.S., so there's a lot. But most of them are building 10 to 20 boats a year, and they're selling them into the local communities. And, you know, the owner is able to pay his mortgage and spend a lot of time fishing or whatever, and they have a good lifestyle. And... Through all my years in the marine industry, that's always what I viewed it as, is boat companies are lifestyle businesses. They're not startups. So I thought, you know what, I'll do this corporate thing for a while. And then, you know, pre-retirement age, I'll, I'll get to the point where I just go start a boat company and that'll, that'll take me through into retirement and that'll be great. I'll build the boats I want. They'll be really cool and it, it'll be fun. And a couple of things happened that, that made me look at it in a different way. One of them was 
you know, going back to the climate thing, I started just feeling climate anxiety and working in that industry and being so close to it. I could see all of the manufacturing inefficiencies. I would be out with major boat brands doing testing on the water and I would see all the pollution we were emitting. I would be at fuel docks and watching the, the fuel attendants spilling gasoline into the water as they were trying to fill up boats. And, you know, particularly with my, my young children, it was just really weighing on my mind. So at some point I made the decision that I'm just going to go work in climate. Like, I know I want to be entrepreneurial. I know I want to be in the startup realm and I know I want to help the environment and do good for the rest of my career. So that was my kind of initial starting point. Then actually in the last five years, a couple of boat companies went from zero to over hundred million in sales in less than three years, which really we hadn't seen in the market before. And then they exited and I said, oh, okay, well that like fully meets the definition of a venture backable startup. And that's pretty interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that we could do that, but it turns out it looks like we can do that now. Um, and so with all those pieces of information, I went out and I started talking to climate tech startups and just said, hey, here's who I am. I've got experience building teams. I've got experience setting up facilities. I have this background in electromechanical engineering. Can I just get a job maybe as like director of engineering at, you know, carbon capture startup or an energy efficiency startup? And I got a couple of offers and I also started talking to investors and just, just like casual conversations. Hey. This is what I want to do in my career. What do you what do you think about this stuff? And one of them said, "Hey, if this is what you want to do and looking at your background, why don't you just go do it?" Like, and it wasn't start a boat company. He was like, "Why don't you just go do whatever is your thing and just go found a company?" And I had a couple more conversations with him and eventually this idea for Epoch started to come together and he was like, "Yeah, I'll I'll be your first investor." Like, this sounds great. Just go do it. So I politely declined all the climate tech job offers and I started Epoch and, you know, I didn't take his money on day one because I was, I was able to, you know, get going on my own and wanted to see where I could land with traction and everything. And ultimately haven't taken any investment money from that particular investor. You know, we started negotiating terms and everything and it wasn't the right fit for both of us, but, but that's ultimately what led to starting it. And it's been a great experience. You know, I love being in the startup world. I love that the way that startups network and the kind of weird serendipitous connections that come together and how people can help each other. And I think especially in the the climate tech and clean tech space, because I think everybody, everybody in the space understands that, yeah, we live in a capitalist society. We, we need to make money. If we're a startup, we need to make our investors money. We need to grow the, the value of the business. But there's also this other, this other thing that's driving us. And that is, you know, how do we prevent carbon from going into the atmosphere? How do we prevent non-CO2 pollution or, or, you know, generate clean energy. So, um, that's kind of how it all came together. And yeah, it's been a ton of fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying it and super glad I made the, the decision and, and kind of got lucky with another of those few things happening at the right time. And tell me, Tom, do you have a co-founder or is this your, I, d I do, I think you referenced, you referenced earlier about the importance of getting the right co-founder. So. Yep. Yeah. I have a co-founder when, when I was coming up with the original ideas, I, like I said, I looked at where my gaps were and I, I yep. found a couple of people that I knew from the Marine industry who were in those gaps. My co-founder, her name's Diane. She actually spent 10 years at a Marine startup, um, that was acquired by the company I worked for. And then I was part of that M&A team. And then ultimately the transition team to, to sort of bring them into the family. So 
we had a chance to work together for a couple of years as a part of that process. And then she ultimately left to go do freelance work. And then shortly thereafter, I left to start Epoch and I called her up and said, hey, you know, with our with our skill sets and where we have gaps and overlaps, we can do something really cool here. Um, the downside is that we're both first time founders. So we were pretty, pretty severely under networked, especially in the beginning. We're probably still a bit under networked now. That's one of our big gaps that we're still working on and, and solving that. But in terms of like the boating side of the business, the engineering piece of it, the marketing piece, we've got We've got a really good foundation there and we built some cool technology. I will say one one of the biggest changes is I had I had, had some low, what I call low performance electric boats in the past. And once we built our first prototype, our first high performance, you know, go fast boat, I never want to touch a gas powered boat again. Like in my low performance electric boats, it was great. You go out, you do some fishing, you do some calm days on the lake. But if you want to go have fun, you would go in the gas powered boat. And now Every time I get in a gas-powered boat to do comparative testing, I'm like, this is such a hassle. I got to go drive to the gas station. I got to worry about fuel pumps and impellers and all these things. And when we go in one of our prototypes, an Epoch prototype, it's like, unplug it, hook it up to the truck. We're in the water and it's good to go. It's it's so much fun. I, I love that. And I know we're at the 30-minute mark, Dion. So I got one more question before we get into the next segment. When you're When you're thinking about MVP, because we, you know, a lot of founders, especially on the hardware side or even software side, we're battling between our version of a a product for market, an MVP, or the customer's expectation of how good something has to be in a, in a, in a world where there's so many different options to choose from. How do you decide when something is good enough to go to market to get some testing and some feedback versus, you know, it's not ready for for anybody to see it yet? When do you let out of the lab? So I think a big part of it depends on the customers that you're talking to. My take on it is that there's different, there's different MVPs depending on the, the slice of the market you're looking at. So we've got some folks on our customer wait list who, through the course of our interviews with them, they said, listen, like, I will take a boat that is unpainted. I will be a beta tester. I will buy a beta boat. Like, I see what you're doing. You've explained it to me. I've seen some of your, your pictures and videos. I just want it. And so... Those are the type of customers that would take a much more rudimentary MVP than if we were just going to go and, you know, open up sales to everybody and not worry about it. And, and that's, that's really our, our focus is who is the specific customer that we're looking at today and what can we provide them and make sure that we provide them the right thing. Safety is, is always our number one priority. So if something's not safe, A, we're not going to put it on the water for ourselves, but we're definitely not going to send it out to a customer. And a very close second to that is is quality, right? It needs to do what the customer expects it to do, and it needs to do it every time. Um, and then, you know, beyond those two, it's cost and delivery time. You know, they need to be right, but but the safety and the quality are the absolute most important thing. Right. So that's kind of how we look at it. It is hard in hardware, right? In software, it's really easy to to compile and test in real time very quickly. And in hardware, we don't have that option. If we go build a boat. That's weeks of building the boat. And if it's not right, there's sometimes things Nothing that we can do to do. repair it, but otherwise we, we almost got to start over in some respects. So fortunately with, with our background in manufacturing, like I've been through it so many times on so many products and 
have a really good process for how do we make sure that this actually works when we get to prototype, when we get to MVP, when we get to production. It's actually something we, we talked about Theranos a little bit or Theranos. Um, you know, it's something that I, I think about from time to time is like not a lot of people who've spent decades in manufacturing go into the realm of starting a hardware startup. They kind of just stay in manufacturing. And we see a lot of hardware startups that are kids who, I say kids, people in you know, college age kids who have never manufactured anything before. And, and I think about back when I tried to start my startup in college, which was a software startup, I think about what I know today and say, like, there's almost no chance that, that I could have ever been successful. And, and for the ones that are successful, I think, I think that's amazing that they can do it. But having worked in traditional manufacturing and learned all the techniques and the rules of thumb and the tricks, I think is just a huge leg up. And it, it makes that piece of making a product that works and making sure that we can have some relief valves in there if we need to, or have some backup mm -hmm. plans a lot easier. It's, we, we get questioned about it a lot and I'm almost like, I don't even think about that. Cause it's just, it's just ingrained in me now. Like it's just what we do. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to articulate. But I think it's an important consideration and a lot of startups we meet, they underestimate the due diligence that has to go into an MVP. And sometimes people try to take the easy way out because it's just an MVP. We just need to put something out and it's supposed to be band-aided and it's supposed to be scrappy, but that's not the case anymore in a global market. Your MVP has to represent a level of quality and a level of, of I guess, trust. Yeah, yeah. And the MVP too, in a lot of ways, instructs other aspects of the startup. So I was part of an accelerator program associated with University of Pennsylvania. And I think like 90% of the startups in, in our cohort were hardware oriented, some kind of tech enabled hardware, which, which I thought was a little weird and rare, but it was cool. So I was talking to one of the other groups and, uh, you know, we were just doing some workshops one day and I had this like huge multi-layered bomb that I was sharing with some of the other groups. And, and they came up to me afterwards and said, like, where did you get all those figures for your, your bill of materials? Like, how do you know that that, that, that screw cost 30 cents? And I said, like, that's a, first I was kind of shocked. Cause I'm like, what a weird question. Like, that's literally what I've done every day of my life for the last 15 years. Like, but then I thought about it more and I was like, oh, okay, this, this team, they literally just graduated and their first job ever is the startup that they founded. And right. so. So, you know, like who are the vendors, who are the resources? And I don't even worry about the vendors anymore. Cause I, I, I've done it so much that I know, you know, this size screw costs that amount of money. Like it's like a, a musician who can just sit at the piano and play. They just know. And it is, it is hard to learn those things. There is no relating back to software. I look at that and I'm like, okay, I can go on Khan Academy or something. And I can, I can basically get an education in how to code at my computer for free. Like that's a great thing that humanity has done that we've put that that resource out there but if you want to go learn how to design stuff for injection molding or for sheet metal design you really can't find that on the internet like you almost just need to go do it and uh, you know if you do it in the context of a big corporation you learn a lot of tips and trips and tips and tricks apologies and then if you make a mistake you know it's it's on somebody else's dime which is usually a good thing and not something that i think a lot of startups can absorb so it's a pretty important thing. And what I like to do too is on the side, I do a lot of informal and also formal advising for other hardware startups, uh, particularly people who haven't been in industry because 
they're almost all climate oriented. And I look at that and say, all right, we want this to work and I want to help you however I can. And if I can take some of my 15 years of knowledge and, and get you over a couple of speed bumps, that that's a great thing to do. So, um, it's an interesting, interesting space. And, you know, I wish the best for everybody who's on that journey and, and maybe hasn't had the in industrial experience. Right. Thank you. Tom, as I said at the beginning, you know, we're not going to take a huge amount of your time. So I would like to close off with three questions, if you don't. And the first question that I have for you is, what tools or software have you found to be indispensable for the early part of your business? So, so for us, the biggest tools are all around design for hardware. So, you know, SolidWorks is our major one. You know, we got a grant through them. All of our boat is designed in SolidWorks, all of our electrical systems, um, you know, things like P-Spice for hardware, laying out circuit boards and things like that. Those are really our big ones. CRM, customer relationship manager, you know, that's huge because since we're at an early stage and we're still able to change things, what our customers tell us is the most important thing and making sure that when they reach out, when they sign up for the waitlist, we can go have a, an actual one-on-one -on -one conversation is, is absolutely vital. We've actually, we're in development on two new boat models right now, just as a result of what our customers have told us, plus what we've learned in our, in our testing. So those are probably the biggest. And tell me if you have to look at the next role that you have to employ within your company, that's going to take you to the next level or give you that exponential space or growth that you require, what, what would that be? So, so our real big focus right now is getting into a pilot production facility. And the next role is all about the individuals that are going to help us build out that facility and then build out the products that are rolling off the line. Um, so, you know, quality is a huge piece of that, something that gets overlooked, especially by startups, but even by a lot of bigger companies. And then, you know, the actual workforce who's going to be building and welding the boats and assembling them. And then my last question is, what has entrepreneurship taught you that you think is a valuable lesson that everyone should learn at some point in their, their life? I, I think the biggest thing is is understanding your personality and how that relates to being introverted, which, you know, I mentioned I'm kind of a mild introvert. So I had been out on sales calls. I had done, you know, presentations in front of big audiences, but because of my introverted tendencies, like I would always, I could do it, but I would be massively exhausted after I did it. And that was kind of how it impacted me. So since I've started Epoch and I've had to go, I don't want to say quash that, but I've had to understand how to how to live in that and be able to talk to people all the time because there's so much opportunity out there from meeting awesome people and really weird connections that you would never expect that come out if you go out and put yourself out there. So now I see it as kind of like a muscle. If I, you know, if I would go on Christmas break and don't talk to anyone but my family for two or three weeks and come back, it's like really, I got to get back in the swing of it. But, you know, when I'm talking to great guys like you, day in and day out when I'm going out to conferences and showcases and stuff and talking to our customers, then, you know, that muscle gets built up and I'm just able to do it all the time. So I think that's huge for anybody that wants to get into entrepreneurship. And there's so many resources globally and online, but also so many communities have resources to help local entrepreneurs get going. And most of those are going to be in person is how you understand and, and become aware of those resources. So 
that's what I would say is if you're introverted, figure out how to, how to strengthen that muscle and, and get out there and, and go do it. And I think most people find that everybody wants to help. So that's brilliant. That, I really appreciate that. That's a good sign of vote for, for humanity, man. I think there's a lot of people just generally, if you reach out and ask for help, they will help. And we just need to do that without ego and some humility. And what a great conversation, Tom. Tom, if people want to find out a little bit more about Epoch, a little bit more about you, where was, where's the best place for them to connect? So we are, we're all over the map. You can find me on LinkedIn. We've got our website, epochboats.com, E-P-O-C-H-B-O-A-T-S. We're on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and, and everywhere. So if you want to talk to me directly, go to epochboats.com and there's a, a link to our info page and you know that'll, that'll come to me and, and I'll respond back and look forward to some great conversations. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BlueMex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.